Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, it's Ryan Reed. Currently on the Mississippi River just below Baton Rouge on a towboat. Pushed a couple barges up here the other day. Just wanted to pop in, tell you love the podcast, say hey to everybody. Hope everybody's having an amazing day. Thanks, man. Hey Chris, my name is Dallas Ann, and I'm on a train right now traveling from Chicago to New York State. It's the middle of the night, and I can't sleep, so your podcast is keeping me company as the miles fly by, or as we're pulled over on the side of the tracks waiting for freight cars to go by. Anyways, thank you so much for all you do. I really appreciate it. Hi, Chris. This is Mark from Baltimore, currently sailing a catamaran from Grenada to Panama. We're about... uh, 100 miles north of Aruba right now. Just got off my night watch, waiting for the sun to rise. Smoking a Cuban, listening to your podcast with Patrick Harris and enjoying life. So I hope you're doing the same, man. Take it easy. All right. Thank you. Everybody's traveling this week. Everybody's on the move. Seems appropriate. <laughs> Excuse me. It's the end of summer and, uh, Everybody's moving around, shifting. Uh, we're back from Colorado. I think I mentioned that. I think this is the second episode since we've been back, so I've already said that. Uh, we're not moving around that much, but we were. We were recently, and I guess we will be again soon. Uh, this episode. This episode is with Dr. Adi Jaffe. He was on once before. He's an addiction specialist. Uh, if you want to know more about him, I would recommend that you go back and check out that earlier episode. That uh, was episode 243, I believe. Yes, episode 243. Um, he's got an interesting background for an addiction doctor. He himself had some um, pretty serious addiction issues, as well as some serious legal issues that uh, he got into. Uh, I don't remember the specifics. He did time. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was into dealing, I believe. Um, And then when he got out of prison, he sort of took the bull by the horns and, uh, you know, talk about Every cloud has a silver lining. I guess he figured, well, I know a lot about drugs, know a lot about addiction, might as well get a PhD and become an addiction doctor. So there you go. The wounded doctor, the best kind. Adi Jaffe, he's here in uh, L.A. He's got a private practice. I think he also teaches uh, maybe at UCLA. See, I should know all this kind of stuff. If I were a professional, if this were a professional show, I'd have a printed sheet in front of me right now saying all these things instead of staring at the um, software that just shows the uh, the monitor ticking along and the 
blue and yellow and red lights where my voice goes. That's what I do. I stare at that and I get into a trance and I forget where I am and I forget what I'm supposed to be doing. But uh, I did remember to tell you that this episode is with Dr. Adi Jaffe. I think I've said that three times now. That's enough. Stop. I've had a lot of thoughts recently, uh, and I don't know whether I should go into them now or do a, maybe I should do a Roma so I don't rant too long here. But uh, I've been spending a lot of time in hospitals, and that's given me the opportunity to um, to think a lot about the state of affairs in the American healthcare system, which is fucking atrocious. Um, yeah. It makes me, I had this idea for another line of t-shirts that says, live slow, die fast. I know that's not grammatically correct. It should be live slowly, die quickly or something along those lines. Uh, But, you know, as far as t-shirt slogans go, good short one syllable slogans work better. Uh, So live slow, die fast. It's incredible. I, you know, it's like, I don't know if you watch basketball games. I like basketball as a sport. I like to play it, despite the fact that I suck at it. Uh, I like to watch it. I think it's incredibly athletic, and, and some of the things that people do are just superhuman. Um, I like the flow of it. I like the movement. Uh, you know, it's very fluid, and it's kind of like soccer, but on a much more compressed Um, space and time scales. Um, But the problem with basketball, unlike soccer, is that you get down to the last few minutes and all the flow stops. It becomes this very obstructed, interrupted, jerky, quick you know they pass the ball in time call time out oh then we get to commercials okay now we're back all right now uh golden state has the has possession so what are they going to do oh uh, they pass it in bad oh they get fouled and uh okay now he has to shoot two foul shots and that's going to take a while okay he shoots a couple foul shots oh and now the other side they get the ball they pass it in and they get fouled oh and the other side calls time out let's go back to some more beer commercials it it's complete it loses all the drama it loses the the sort of sort of i don't know the theatrical integrity of it it even when it's totally obvious what the outcome's going to be one team is down 15 points there's a minute left there's absolutely no way in hell the other team is going to catch up it's mathematically impossible but still they will foul to stop the game, force the worst foul shooter on the other side to step up and shoot some foul shots, and then they'll try to score, and then they'll call timeout, and they'll do all this shit. And what it does is it ruins the fucking game. And this is one of the reasons I I continue to love soccer, despite all the problems, all the rolling around, pretending you're hurt, all the bullshit. It's 45 minutes of play. No beer, no trucks, no timeouts, just play. And then you take a pause. Everybody goes, takes a piss, gets another beer, does what they have to do, makes their phone calls, whatever. Come back another 45 minutes, uninterrupted, except for fouls. But even that's very quick. The game continues. The flow of the game continues. And so you can experience it as one 
event as opposed to all these tiny little fragments of something that seems like it should be an event. And that's what I see in hospitals. It's, I go, the hospital that my dad's in is Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. It's a big, fancy hospital. And I guess you only get a room there if you have very good insurance. And my dad has great insurance. So I go to visit him. I walk down the hallway and it's room after room after room of old, old people who I'm not diagnosing anybody, but I don't see anybody in there that it looks like they're going to go out and live a life. It looks to me like this is the stoppage time at the end of the game. This is where everything is interrupted. The natural flow toward death is interrupted. And we consider this to be some sort of triumph of technology. The amount of resources that are going into keeping these people standing there in the doorway between life and death is incredible. The CAT scans, the MRIs, the x-rays, the antibiotics, all the stuff, all the doctor time. There are five or six doctors coming in and out of my dad's room every day. Why? Why? He's not going to go home. He's not going to go get a job. He's not going to go back to his life. His life is over. The game's over. The other team's up 20 points. There's a minute left. Why are we dragging this out? The problem with the American, one of the problems with the American healthcare system is an absolute refusal to accept the inevitability, the necessity, and dare I say it, the beauty of death. A life should flow like a soccer game. It should not be interrupted for fucking beer and truck commercials or MRIs or, you know, artificial fucking hip surgery on 90-year-olds. This is nonsense. And meanwhile, we've got kids and young people who do have a life to get back to, who have kids, who have jobs, who are in the midst of the game. They can't get health care. They can't get fixed and sent back onto the field because they don't have the insurance. They can't afford it. And so the whole thing is set up to just extract wealth from old people, whether it's through their insurance companies or by forcing their family to put their house up, sell the fucking house so you can pay for all this unnecessary bullshit. And the person who's going through it isn't even benefiting from it. They're only, you can only argue that they're benefiting from it if you believe that death is worse than any type of life, than any shadow of life. And I think that's the unspoken assumption underlying this whole approach to medicine in the United States. And that's fundamentally untrue. And this is something I write about in Civilized to Death, this idea that, that, for example, having more and more people is necessarily better somehow. Often when I get into this discussion about civilization and its malcontents, which I guess I'm one of them, uh, 
People say to me, you know, come on, look at, you know, our population. Look at, you know, obviously we're a thriving species. There are so many of us now. So there's this idea that total life is somehow a measure of quality of life, whether it's how many of your species exist on the planet. So, oh, we're the, you know, dominant species because there are 7 billion of us. Well, there are, you know, probably 30 billion chickens, but nobody calls them a dominant species. How many fucking pigs are living in cages on the planet right now? They're not a particularly dominant species. But that's one of the measures that people like Steven Pinker and Matt Ridley, these champions of progress, love to trot out. Uh, Another one is another sort of simplistic quantitative measure of life is how long we live. So I just, Steven Pinker was on the Bill Maher show last week and touting his, uh, his book, um, Enlightenment Now, which argues that, you know, this is the best time ever in the history of the world and progress is undeniable. And, you know, just look at the data, look at the numbers. Well, the first thing he said when Bill Maher asked him to sort of outline his argument, he said, well, you know, everything's getting better. Look at life itself. I think I'm pretty much quoting him here. He said, uh, I don't know what it was, 300 years ago or something, uh, you know, human life expectancy measured at birth. He said that as an aside measured at birth uh, was 30 years around the world. Now it's the global average is 72 years and it's going up even in developed countries. Now, you've heard me rant about this before, so I won't, I won't go into it, but that gives people the impression that the quantity of life that people had 300 years ago was 32 years, and now it's 70-something. Undeniably, much, much better, doubling. Well, of course, you've heard me explain many times, or if you read Sex at Dawn, you have read the explanation for why that is bullshit, why they know it's bullshit. People like Pinker and Ridley and others who use those sort of statistical mumbo-jumbo hocus-pocus to make that point. But it leaves a very strong impression, and it's bullshit that is very believable to people who are hungry to believe this and primed uh, to see evidence for progress even where it isn't. So that's another measure. I mean, you know, we've got into the whole infant mortality thing, you know, about that. If you don't just, you know, look it up. It's on, it's on my blog on psychology today. It's on my, I think it's on my webpage. There's a blog space where I reproduce some of those articles. Um, But even just like looking beyond the infant mortality bullshit, 72 years, that's, okay, let's say that's uh, standard life expectancy now. Um, how many of those years in the United States, it's closer to the mid-80s, I think, for men and women, women 86, men 83, something like that. How many of those are, are years of life as opposed to this, you know, the last minute of the basketball game takes 20 minutes. The first 20 minutes takes 30 minutes. You know, because they don't put as many commercials in there. So they pack all the commercials in. So these, like, you know, my father's still alive right now, technically, but he's not living. But when the numbers are calculated, his age of death will be greater than what it was yesterday. It'll be greater than what it was three, four months ago. 
but he wasn't living then either. So we need to define what it means to be alive. When someone has Alzheimer's and doesn't recognize anyone from their life, their kids, their partner, their friends, they don't recognize anyone. Is that person alive? Is that Bob, who we all knew, who five years ago we were sitting around playing poker with, now he doesn't know us? Is that still Bob? I don't think so. Bob doesn't think so. Bob doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Is he alive? And these are, I'm not saying these are simple questions, and I'm not saying I have the answer to them, but I am saying that life is something that needs to be measured with a matrix that's a little more nuanced and comprehensive than minutes or years. And the last thing I wanted to say about this is when I walk down that hallway in the hospital and I see all these people on various types of technological life support standing there trapped at the threshold between life and death. It occurs to me how utterly unnatural and historically unique it is to see human beings in that state. Because in the hundreds of thousands or millions of years that we've existed, depending how you define we, no, none of us has ever persisted in a state like that of utter helplessness um, for more than a couple hours, a couple days. You know, if somebody, somebody had a fall, let's say, and broke their neck and were paralyzed, um, well, some of their friends and family would have probably tried to take care of them, tried to make them comfortable, tried to feed them, give them water. Um, in fact, there's a, a fossil, uh, quite, quite an old fossil, um, going well before the advent of anatomically modern homo sapiens that the person, I forget what it was. They had, um, a vitamin deficiency that caused bone deformations. And it was clear that this person could not have fed themselves and that this was a condition that I believe had, um, started in childhood. And so it was, a case where when they found the skeleton, it was clear evidence that other people had kept this person alive for a long time. Um, but this is a person who was, you know, mentally alert, uh, had a little trouble walking, probably couldn't hunt, but there was enough food that they took care of them. But these people in this state of semi-life, semi-death, uh, they would not have existed. They would have died uh, quite quite a while before they reached a state like this. Uh, and at most, as I said, if it were an accident or something, it would have a couple of days at most because then the group has to move on and they're not going to carry someone around. There's um Jared Diamond book, uh, The World 
before now or the world just before now something like that i think it's his last most recent book there's a whole section in there on how hunter-gatherer people deal with death and generally the men when they reach an age where they can't contribute to the society anymore they can't hunt they've gone blind they can't keep up with the group they're expected to just sort of take themselves out and they generally do and in many societies, women do as well. But in some societies, it falls to um, someone's given the responsibility to um, strike a woman in the an older old woman in the back of the head with a hatchet and kill her instantly. And when I read that, I thought, Jesus, that's fucking brutal. That's horrible. And I'm sure it strikes many of you that way, especially you older ladies. But when you look at the alternative, look at the real, true life alternative. Look at the way people are dying now. And Ben, I look at it every day. These days. I'd rather get a fucking hatchet to the back of the head. You don't see it coming. It's painless. It's quick. And you're gone. Now again, if you have some sort of assumption that being dead is so horrible that it's worse than being hooked up to a bunch of machines, having a catheter stuck up your dick, having people wiping your ass, being a helpless 80-year-old infant and watching your dignity drain away along with your all the money you've managed to save throughout your life. You can't leave it to anybody. It just gets sucked right out of you. Well, if you think death is worse than that, then I'd like to know more. I think it's worth thinking more clearly about what you think death is. Because everybody seems to be terrified about where we go after we die, but I don't hear anybody yelling around, running around screaming about how terrible it was before they were born. But presumably, it's the same place, right? Where we were before we were born is the same place or non-place that we go to after we die. And I don't hear anybody talking about how horrible it used to be in those pre-birth years. So if we can assume that being dead doesn't suck, it might not be great. It might not be fun, but at least it doesn't suck. And I'll tell you what, that room down at Cedar Sinai, it sucks. That whole fucking ward sucks. And it sucks for the doctors, too. I feel for them. These people didn't go into medicine so they could spend their lives keeping, you know, given a few more months of misery to people in their 80s and 90s. That's not why you go into medicine. It's like, it's weird. It's like mechanics who, who, first of all, they're all specialists. So it's like, All these mechanics who only understand the cooling system or they only understand the suspension or they only work with the transmission. And so you see them coming in one after another and it's like, oh, he's the infection guy. So he's dealing with this. And this is the the dietician. She's dealing with that. And then this one's the the, the cardiologist. So he's dealing with this. And there's no integration. There's no one who understands the car. There's just all this. And so the... You know, the like the suspension guys like, yeah, we're going to like put in a new suspension and we're going to change these uh, leaves and put in some shock absorbers. And it's like this car's never fucking going out on the road again. What's the point? 
You guys are like changing all these parts on a car that nobody's ever going to drive. Fucking strange. All right. That's enough for me. That's 23 minutes of depressing ranting. Sorry. I should have saved that for a Toma or a Roma or whatever the fuck they are. Um, all right. I'm going to play a song. <laughs> this song, I think this guy sent me the song a long time ago. And I just, my emails are like 600 flagged messages in the inbox. So if you sent me an email that was important and I flagged it like, got to get back to this person or got to come back and, you know, listen to this song or, you know, follow this link or whatever. There's a pretty good chance it's sitting there in my email and I have never gotten around to it. Really sorry about that. Uh, this is Brett Newski. He and I have corresponded for a while. I think he, he met Carsey Blanton on tour somewhere and, that led to the podcast and he sent me some stuff and I don't know. Anyway, this song is called ride. It's a really interesting song. Make sure to listen to the lyrics and it's worth checking out the video too. I'll put the video up on this episodes. Um, this, this episode on my website, it's a, it's a cool video shot all around the U S maybe all around the world. I, I only watched it once, but there's new Orleans and desert shots. And I think, uh, Chicago, I don't remember Chicago, I think. Um, anyway, it's an interesting, interesting tune. And, uh, he and his, I don't know if he has a band or just the drummer or what, but they've been doing this stuff where they, um, sort of do, uninvited gigs in places where nobody wants to have music like a Walmart. So there's a, there's a video, they call it dork rock bum rush and they got kicked out of a Walmart playing and they, they did a video there. It was pretty, pretty cool. This dude starts dancing. It's really nice. Uh, yeah. Anyway, check that out. That's you'll, you'll find a link to that on my website as well. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Adi, Dr. Adi Jaffe. And I hope I didn't bum you out too much with that intro shit. That's what's happening these days. Uh, I hope all's well with you, wherever you are, whatever form of transportation you're on at the moment, a boat on the Mississippi river sailing to Bermuda or the other woman was on the night train taking that night train all right thanks for listening to this and supporting this podcast in whatever way you do it's much appreciated here's ride by brett newski you can hear more of his music at brett newski b-r-e-t-t-n-e-w-s-k-i dot com Take you for a ride I, 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 I wanna take you 
to Japan Before I'm a head case And get stuck in this town Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting in a beautiful living room with, is it Adi or Adi? I forget. Adi. Adi. Adi Jaffe. Adi Jaffe. uh, Who has been on the podcast before. I don't remember what episode it was, but it was a while ago. Year or two, maybe? Or a year? I'd say two years ago. Was it two already? Yeah, I think two years ago. Up in Topanga. Up in Topanga. So now we're at his place on his home court. And uh, you have a new book coming out soon? I do, yeah. When's, when's it out? When's the release date? So, you know, with, uh, with the internet and distribution, everything being what it is, um, that's a little dependent on Amazon. So, Jeff, if you're listening, please uh, speed up the release of my book. But um, Jeff is handling it personally? Yeah, I'm that's, sure. I'm sure. That's great. Doesn't he handle all yeah. the Amazon stuff personally? I email him when my uh, <laughs> Amazon sales slump a little. <laughs> and he helps it out. Hey, Jeff. Um, so pre-sale should be up in the next week to week and a half. Ah. And then full size should be up, I'm hoping August 27th. That's my birthday. Mm. So we're going to try to do a release on my birthday, which would be fun. Sweet. Is Amazon publishing it? or is No. It- so we publish through BookBaby. Do you know BookBaby? Uh, it's, no. It's, it's like one of those uh, self-publishing platforms. Right. They help with the design of the interior and all right. that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, and so they're the ones... That are handling the distribution and all that, right. but you know Amazon yes. still ends up being the biggest place that sells. I know it's it's a funny thing. The whole the whole book world is changing so radically, and uh, the publishing world isn't. <laughs> you know, right? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like what iTunes had to go through around music. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of resistance, and Amazon's doing the same thing, and they're they're kind of just controlling the market at this point. Um, so I'm I'm really excited for it. I uh, I got my first book contract. Uh, well, I guess technically my only book contract to date um, when I was in grad school, but I could never deliver the book. Hmm. Uh, I thought I was ready before I was actually ready. The story wasn't complete enough. I hadn't figured out exactly what I wanted to say quite enough. So that was 10 years ago, and I'm happy to finally actually put something out. Did you have an advance you had to give back? I had an advance. It was $2,500. Oh. So literally what they told me was, you know what? If you get if you get another contract, pass the $2,500 back. Yeah. That was kind of how it went. It was, yeah. I was a grad student. I met yeah. these people at uh, at an American Psychological Association conference, and they loved the concept. But as you know from writing, wanting to write a book and finishing a book are about the same as watching FIFA uh, online and and actually going and playing in the World Cup. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> not, not the same. I, I guess. I think everybody yeah. wants to tell their story. Or like story. watching a bird and actually jumping out of a tree and flying. Yeah. 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 It's um. So it took me. It kind of took me ten years to write this book. The one, the one you're about to publish. The yeah. title of which we still haven't mentioned. No, we haven't. It's you got to jump on that. You got to jump on that. So the title is the abstinence myth. The abstinence myth. That's right. And it has to do with 
really the same concept we talked about two years ago. Right. This kind of, look, you know, I've now spent the last two years talking to people about addiction over and over. And if people out there are not recognizing that what we're doing around addiction and substance use isn't working, I don't know what other signals they need. Right. Overdose deaths are growing year after year after year and have been really since we started tracking them. Right. Um, drug use is not being touched by our policies. It might shift to different substances. So like in the 80s, it was crack. And then in the 2000s, it was meth. And now it's back to opiates. And it was heroin, you know, earlier. So the, the mix of what people are using is shifting. But we're not touching the addiction problem. We're not touching the drug use problem. And everybody keeps believing that if they just tweak something small, like if... Uh, if they use a little bit more of this technique or if you know we we offer a different kind of anonymous meeting or something like that then we will address it and this yeah. book tries to turn that on its head and and flip the equation a little bit so just by the way you frame that it's already apparent that you don't believe for people who aren't familiar with your work or haven't listened to the previous episode you've made it clear implicitly that you don't believe that addiction is uh, about the substances if it's like, oh, it was heroin, then it was this, then it was crack, then it was meth, and it's like, then it's not about the substance. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's partially about what the chemical delivers for you. Mm-hmm. But, and, and then, by the way, each one of the chemicals has an, an entire cascade of neuropharmacological and biological processes that happen. So to that extent, it is about the substance, right? Like if you're struggling with opiates, you're going to have to deal with withdrawal that mm. is some of the most severe that we know and most uncomfortable. Benzos, the same sort of thing. If you're dealing with cocaine or methamphetamine, the withdrawal looks completely different. So the process you'll go through is, is chemical dependence, uh, or sorry, chemically dependent. But what I really believe is that for the vast majority of people who get addicted, there's an a whole set of underlying symptoms. The way I talk about them in the book is I fit them into four categories. So biological, environmental, psychological, or spiritual. And what I try to make a point of is we've just gotten used to calling anybody who struggles with substances, sex, food, etc., an addict. And we really somehow have gotten ourselves to believe that they're all the same, that just all addicts are the same. Mm. I think that's a complete misnomer. I believe that Again, like I categorize it across these four categories that every person that comes to us has a different mix of these things. And if we try to treat them as, um, as a single occurrence, we're missing the boat, which is, to me, part of the reason why we're just not hitting the nail on the head. There's, we're, we keep missing in our approaches and trying the same thing over and over. Well, maybe it's four nails. Is that is that's what you're saying? It's, yeah, or, it's not one nail on the head. It's four nails. You've it's, got it's, different... Yeah, so I would say it's kind of like the way I would think about it in, in that analogy is there could be four nails and each one of them could be sticking out a different amount right and our job is more to figure out what is your mix and then address those issues which is why i call it the abstinence myth because anybody who's listening and knows has known anyone who struggled with addiction themselves has seen this happen repeatedly which is the first thing you have to do even if you admit that you have an addiction is quit that's the first thing they ask you to do if you go to rehab, you have to first admit, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. As soon as I walk through those doors, I'm going to stop. I think that's the last piece. Committing to abstinence is a thing you do once you're better equipped. It's a little bit like asking somebody who's hurt their leg to go run a marathon before getting physical therapy. Mm, um, right. And that's why I call it yeah. the abstinence that's a good myth. point. You know, it's um, people who are dependent on substances and or behaviors to deal with their reality are not in a place where without a whole slew of support on the front end, 
they're ready and or capable necessarily to commit to abstinence yet. And do you think abstinence is the ultimate goal? I don't think it's the ultimate goal. I think it's a great goal for some people. I have clients, you know, when people ask me what happens with people who go through and, and get help from me, 40 to 50% decide that they want to abstain. Even there, though, what I'm learning over the last decade now is let's say they've drank for decades and we got their drinking under control and then they decided, I want to I just stop. I don't like drinking like this or there's still too many screw-ups. Inevitably, they'll still do something where once a month or once a week or a couple, every couple of months, they'll take a hit of weed. So even my version of abstinence typically is a lot less absolute than what we hear out there is the goal. Mm, okay, right. I think last time we talked about uh, Stanton Peel a little bit. We did, absolutely. Yeah. You've met him? Yeah, several times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's I, been I, on the podcast. He actually, I, I met him because we both had blogs on psychology today. Oh, yeah. Way back when. And before Sex at Dawn came out, I started, you know, sort of working out some of the ideas on the blog. And he became a very early supporter. That's awesome. Um, I think even before, maybe even before I had a book pro- contract or something. I don't remember. But he was very much like, hey, you're, you got to write this. This is going to be great. And, and it was really, it was very um, helpful for me to have somebody who had several books published and was well known in his field, just sort of like in my corner. And yeah, yeah he read some of the drafts and stuff. He, he was wonderful. And yeah. he's a very prolific writer. Yeah. Uh, and, and has an incredibly unique voice. You know, I always joke because we're—I consider him a friend, mm. um, and and yet Stanton stands on his pulpit and yeah. he will beat you down. And he's so smart <laughs> that he will beat you at the end. And he's got that curmudgeonly thing going on too, <laughs> so, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, so much love for Stanton, but yes, uh, he was one of—I mean, look—he's a trailblazer in this area. He was. What was his his big classic? Love and addiction. Love and addiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think. He actually wrote that book two years before I was born. Yeah, so seventy-two or something. I give him in the acknowledgement. I think it was seventy-four or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I give him in, in the acknowledgement in the book. I acknowledge him as well. That's also, great. Some other trailblazers yeah. because it's hard to be at the tip of the spear mm-hmm. in almost anything, and he was there for sure. Yeah, and and daring to question the orthodoxy of abstinence <clears throat> in terms of addiction treatment. Is not it doesn't only carry that sort of intellectual um, cost of daring to question any orthodoxy in in the academic world and the clinical world, but also I think it's supercharged because you can be accused of killing people. You know, you you hit it perfectly. I mean, and I'll, if I can be honest, that was a fear of mine in putting this thing out. Right. Here's the the irony that I find right. We are losing more people to addiction now than ever before, as far as we've kept track, right? right? So we're now, if you include alcohol, forget cigarettes for a second that are killing, you know, 400 and some thousand people a year still. Um, if you just look at alcohol and overdoses, we're at about 150,000 deaths a year. In right? the U.S. In the U.S. Right. And we went, alcohol at, at 88,000 or so a year used to be the, by far the biggest hitter. Opiates are catching up. They're by some measure, forty to 50,000 people a year are being lost right now annually to just uh, opioid overdoses because of fentanyl and, and the um, synthetic opioids that are coming out. And so we currently have a system that is killing 
120,000 to 150,000 people a year. And yet suggesting somehow that that system isn't working puts you at risk for being blamed uh, for causing other people's deaths because they weren't engaging in the initial system. Only 10 to 15% of people who struggle with addiction right now get treatment. Mm. That's a well-established number. SAMHSA has been looking at that for decades. It doesn't, t- we can't touch it. It's like 10, 10% one year, 12% another year, but it stays there the whole time. And is that uh, dependent upon availability? Not at all. Re- not at all? Not at all. 15,000 providers. Um, we have the capacity to handle easily two, three, four times that in terms of actual capacity. What, Who's paying for it? So what ends up happening is on the low end, um, you get like Medi-Cal, Medicare, that, that sort of fully publicly reimbursed. Those providers do get to be, tend to be busier. But look, we also live in a capitalistic society. If there was five times the demand, other providers would come in on the low end. Um, well, wait a minute. Five times the paid demand. Because it is a capitalistic society, and a lot of people who are struggling with addiction don't have the money and don't have insurance that's going to pay for it. Sure. So if you're, if you're below the poverty level and you get something like Medi-Cal or, or um, um, you know, any other state's version right. of that, then there are providers that are primarily for medication-assisted treatment, not really for robust yeah, they're not doing psychotherapy, not, spiritual, psycho-spiritual development. Yeah. And also waiting, I mean, my understanding is that there are waiting lists. And for, for some of the residential treatments, there could be 30-day waiting lists, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have a, a, a close friend, I'm actually associated with the organization in Baltimore, who, you know, they have, I want to say it's 10,000 people they serve a month now at a publicly funded, so essentially med, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, funded treatment center they're having the, the problem of getting people engaged in the therapy so even once people get the medication assisted treatment they don't want to step it up and, mm. and do some of the other work and even in that framework we've talked about why before and look the issue is i believe that everybody knows what happens when you cross into that door and what happens is they're going to ask you to quit mm. and we're back to that same right. piece right right I mean, let's, let's just unpack that population a little bit more. You're talking pe- about people who are primarily um, unemployed, struggling in circumstances that are incredibly traumatic and probably have been traumatic for decades, right? So, you know, an ideal, because, look, I'll be straight up, the, most of the people I see one-on-one are upper middle class to affluent, and they have had trauma in their life. You talk about some of these underserved communities and trauma just runs generationally. So if we get back into biology, the epigenetics and all Mm. that and everything that's involved in generational trauma is there and they've experienced their own since they were born. So deeply seated problems with uh, hormonal regulation, stress response, all the things that we know happen, right? And then what we tell them is, oh, we'll give you help. If you walk through that door, you just have to stop drinking or you just have to stop smoking crack. All you have to do is the thing that you've been unable to do for the last 20 years. That's it. But once you do that on the other end, and that's why I'm writing this book is, I think that's the way I talk about it in the book is making abstinence the guard at the gate for help is so wrong. Right. It's, It's keeping, I really firmly believe that it is keeping the majority of people who would seek help otherwise from seeking the help. Right. Yeah. You have to do 100 push-ups to join the gym. What the fuck? 
Sure. Like if I go do run a hundred, marathon and you can and you can come in and, and yeah, get a membership. I don't need you. If I could do that, I wouldn't need a gym. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and you're getting you're you're dealing with the social origins of this. I mean, you're talking about trauma, obviously, because in parallel to the overdose deaths that we're talking about, suicide rates are going oh, up dramatically in the U.S. Like 50% in some populations. It's insane. And we're, yeah. obviously we're hearing people are aware of it because of the celebrity versions. But I think we really have to stop and ask ourselves a question. We give, I give this talk every once in a while about happiness. Um, and I break it down based on neurotransmitters. But the overall message is we have somehow gotten so derailed in terms of our expectations of what life is supposed to look like you know, the social media enhanced world and, and all these elements of, of how we live our lives that the levels of dissatisfaction that people are experiencing are just monumentally increased year after year. Uh, I remember seeing that Louis C.K. interview, I think it was on Dave Letterman, the everything is perfect and nobody's happy. And I think we're just, we keep, it's like we keep pushing the pedal on that and we're seeing the results. So my entire approach is to go, I mean, my, the first thing I ask people when I see them, if I see them one-on-one -on -one versus kind of all the automated stuff I do online, I say, what's going on? What's wrong? I know they're coming to me for weed or for alcohol or for porn or whatever, but that is what, what they're using to deal with whatever else is going on. So, Do they necessarily know what's wrong? No, it takes some digging. It takes a lot of digging. I mean, a metaphor I often think of is like we're fish in a poison lake you know and we're all swimming around trying to find the clean water sort yeah. of instinctively um but there isn't any right how do you escape especially if you're talking to someone you know 25 or under who's grown up with social media and yeah. the phone in their hand and they you know there's that shifting baseline problem where they don't know uh what life was like before that. They don't know what it was like to, you know, you know, Louis CK, let's, let's roll with Louis CK. Yeah. Uh, he has also that great bit about the phone, you know, like you used to have to like call someone and, you know, dial, literally dial the number. And if they weren't home, they didn't pick up the phone, yeah. you know, and you had to try later. And it was like, delayed the, the idea of delayed gratification existed well and also the the idea of like um not uh multitasking your attention all the time having your attention be focused on one person at a time it's one of the things i love about doing this podcast i was gonna say the exact same thing that's yeah. what i love about podcasts yeah yeah oh by the way you have a podcast uh tell tell the world if they want to check it out the world the world, <laughs> the world. hey world 150 million people listening <laughs> right. presently um that's right it's being translated happened? into russian even as we speak it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> simulcast around the world thanks again jeff by the way <laughs> yeah um so i told you this story before it's funny but i called my company ignited and the podcast is called ignited but it's spelled i-g-n-t-d and i do it with my wife i-g-n-t-d so there's it's like an um, i and an e missing out of the ignited um and you you set fires is that what you do, we do. it's an we, arson. arsonist <laughs> it's a freelance arson company yeah um uh, if you, you have, know, it's, you have it's, an old building like you need burned down. It's like cereal, but but future tense. So we're we're trying to see if we'll get caught with arson. We that's leave great. clues that's on the podcast. Oh, that's great. Um, that's a good idea, actually. Do a podcast while you're committing, committing a crime. major crime. Yeah, 
and then release it later. Okay, I just I want to say publicly here, I'm not giving <laughs> you this idea in case you start committing this crime. I'm not I'm, I'm not abetting in any way. Oh, it's too late. It's oh, happened. It's happened. It. Yeah. It. yeah. I, uh, you know, I have a criminal past. I can't. I'm not allowed to participate. Oh, that's in right. These that's right. We talked about that in your first. Uh, so do I, by the way. Yeah. I, oh, you I do? have a criminal record. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, we should uh, we should do an entire episode on not comparing <laughs> comparing what jail was like. It sucks, by the way, for anybody listening right now. It is terrible. Mine was good. It was. I Where'd went you go? to the one of the better uh, prisons in America, um, Fairbanks Correctional Center in uh, Alaska. Oh, yeah, Fairbanks. It was cold. No, it was summer. Oh, nice. And I wasn't in very long. I was oh. only in for Memorial Day weekend. Oh, so it, I get it. it was sort of a vacation. I was at LA Men's Central County Jail. See, that's not, not the same. No, not that's, the same. That's not. I learned a lot about distinguishing different uh, racial groups because apparently there you can are tell more... by the color. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I do it. <laughs> yes, you would be surprised when you go in there. there are... <laughs> There are finer gradations uh, that you have to abide by. And if you're in a big enough uh, kind of dorm, there are literally ways you can't walk if you're of certain races. It's uh, not enjoyable. So apparently everybody listening, Fairbanks, go ahead and get arrested because that's nice. If you're in L.A. or any other major metropolitan area, and I hear South American jails suck too. Except Mexican if you have some money. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Mexican jails, you can like buy an air conditioner and... You know, your girlfriend can come and visit you. And yeah, if you have money, you, it's like everything in Mexico. You're... You know what? I get the title of this podcast far better than I did last time now. <laughs> We're meandering a little bit. I here. love it. No, I love it. This yeah. is, um, I, don't, I mean, I think I told you there was the podcast that we did in Topanga last time that made me go, I think I want to do this. Uh, because typically before it was like, okay, what are the talking easy. points? He can do it. Anyone can do it. <laughs> well, before it was like talking points. Like, what are the talking points you want to hit? Et yeah, and and yeah. it felt more like an interview. Right. And then when I realized that podcasts can just be conversations, I go, I love this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my uh, sort of ambition with the podcast is to have people on who have something interesting to say and cover those things, but then also get to things that they don't get to with other people. Totally. So like I had Johan Hari on, oh. uh, and I don't remember if it, see, this is the other thing. I don't remember if it was during the podcast or after the podcast that, you know, we and, blew up. Well, no, we talked about his father and, you know, oh, his wow. family thing and, you know, how he got into the world he's into and, and his, I don't know how much you know about him. He had a huge, um, Oh, blow up the, the, the journalistic fiasco. blow up. Yeah. 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 Sure. yeah, yeah. Um, but and I didn't even raise that, you know. Uh-huh. So I I don't go directly for the main thing sure. that you would expect because I don't want I don't want it to be a guarded, you totally. know. We just I just did yeah. an interview with uh, on our podcast with Melissa Hartwig. I don't know if you know the whole Whole Thirty movement. Her name, yeah. Who's she created the Whole Thirty movement? Whole Thirty. Yeah, it's that. It's a diet. Ver- it's kind of like paleo diets. It's one of those oh, kinds of things in that right. in that realm, and. Um, she decided because she has an addiction history as well. And none of this is now secret because she talked about it on our podcast. But um, all we talked about was her early sexual trauma and addiction. We um, didn't even touch dieting right. at all. And it was... That's that's the best. It was one of the most powerful. Yeah. I mean, she's told me that hundreds of messages later, women reached out to her who have been following her for dieting. Right. And just connected with her on a much deeper level. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um that that is what I love about podcasts. It's like... It's this ability to sit in on 
conversations that people have that reveal things you wouldn't be able to get just on your way to work otherwise. Well, and let's let's bring this back around um, because one of your okay biological, environmental, psychological, and spiritual using the the sort of contaminated, polluted lake yeah. uh, image. Every one of these things connect absolutely uh, on the level of saying we live in a pathological world. How is addictive, compulsive, self-harming behavior not a totally predictable response to that? Absolutely. So let me, if I can, here's where I flip the current understanding. I mean, if you go to any of the traditional kind of treatment centers and again there's a shift but as you probably know from all the work you've done this is a 15 to 20 year lag between research and application in almost every field and it's not different in this area best case scenario yeah so we're still working on 50 60 80 year old concepts in this field and you know 15 years ago when i went to treatment and still to this day in a lot of more kind of 12-step centric treatment centers they talk about your character defects they talk about this allergy, this built-in allergy that you have. So it's all very self-centric in terms of you have brought this on yourself. And the analogy you're, you're saying right now is almost the exact opposite, which is you haven't brought any of this on yourself. It's about the what's, what's around you. I look at it as a mix, right? No doubt people's decisions also lead to their outcomes. But the problem is that if you don't understand neuroscience at all, and if you don't understand psychology at all, you really believe that all decisions are either completely self-directed or the opposite, if you're very um, religious and believe that it's all handed down to you from a god of some sort, then you believe it's all faded and none of it is up to you. I don't, I'm, I'm not really good at black or white thinking in general, so I see the gray all the time. And if you learn about motivational systems in the brain and how we make decisions, sure, you're making decisions, but you're making decisions based on what your brain understands about the past. And those things are already ingrained. So unless you change your perception of what is available, you mm. can't make new decisions because your brain is literally not capable of understanding that there are other options, if that makes sense, right? right? It's like being in a video game and not discovering some weird little code that opens up a new door. Right. Once you discover that code and you click it into your system, new options actually open up. And so you're asking to bring it back, you're asking, do people recognize? And the short answer is oftentimes no. People come in and they don't know what it is. And that's what I think it's a second set of eyes or like I have an online course that is fully automated and the reason people can still benefit from not even talking to me individually is I will bring up examples and I will walk them through paths that other clients have gone through and then you see something and you go, oh wait, that reminds me and you follow that path farther. Right. Whereas most traditional programs, the way I've seen them up until now, do it the complete other way. They say, first you quit and then once you quit, we'll teach you a new way of living. Sort of backfill. Yeah, yeah. Well, but we'll, well, we'll backfill regardless of what happened to you, right? And, yeah. and what I say is I need to understand the polluted lake. Right. If I don't understand the polluted lake, then because everybody has their own different mix of pollution, I need to help you solve your polluted lake, right? What, what might have worked for Jimmy over there who has huge genetic predisposition and early life sexual trauma might not work for you if the reason you're struggling with this is because your work environment presently mm. is heavily inundated with right. drinking. Right. Those two solutions are not the same, and we keep trying right. to fit them to the same. So, yeah, in your, in your mental image, each person's lake is polluted in an individual, unique way. And so you have to respond to 
the contaminants that you're dealing with. Yeah, by, the, by the way, I didn't make it explicit how this was bringing it back around, sure. but the connection in my head was, you know, you're talking about podcasts. We were talking about podcasts having these meaningful conversations, and I think that one of the problems, I'm not an addiction expert, but uh, my sense is that one of the primary drivers of addiction is is a hunger for meaning and an absence of that essential nutrient mm. in our environment, in this society. You know what I love about that a lot? So have you ever seen the Wheel of Life assessment? The it's Wheel like of a, Fortune? Almost. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. with Vanna? Vanna White. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's great. I can't believe they're still doing she's that. She's still shit. doing it's it. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ode to lighting effects makeup and uh, I'm assuming plastic surgery but I don't know and then so, chance <laughs> just complete but there's probably some guy under the wheel who's just rigging the whole thing who slows it down stop. and yeah um, <laughs> I don't buy it so I'm not buying it one of the most common I think every coach on earth probably has used this tool once it's called the wheel of life and it's essentially an eight area of life assessment zero to ten you grade where you feel like you're performing on each one of these things. Mm. It's a really quick and dirty assessment tool when people come in and say, I'm not happy to figure out where are you not happy because mm. people don't even know what questions to ask. Right. After doing it with, I would say, about three, 400 So people, what is it, like relationships, physical relationship, health? career, your career, physical career, environment, right. personal growth, uh, nutrition, well, uh, health. Yeah, exactly. Right, okay. So uh, romantic relationship, family relationships, all these things. I realized, as after doing this with a few hundred people, that I would keep asking everybody the same question after it as a, as a follow-up about their purpose. Mm. Why are they doing what they're doing? And that's Simon Sinek and the whole you know question why. And then, um, and then their contribution. So how are they helping others in their day-to-day existence? And you know what I realized with almost everybody who came to me? They pretty much scored zero on both of those. Um, and so I added them. We created at Ignite Recovery, we created our own wheel, which has two more slices on it. So now it's 10 instead of eight slices. But I had a guy come and sit with me just two days ago, and he came in and said, look, everything sucks. I don't know what it is. Uh, initially, it was sex addiction. And he came with his wife, and I'm still seeing them, but the wife emailed me and said, look, he's having a really hard time. Can you just see him for a one-on-one session alone? I said, sure. Comes in. He can't figure out. Everything sucks, et cetera. I have him do the wheel. Purpose and contribution are at zero. I go, why, why are you waking up in the morning? What is it that makes you do what you're doing? He goes, pussy. Nothing. No, nothing. Not he had even nothing. That. He had no answer. I mm. mean, he's married and, you know, they're holding off on having kids. So, like, once you're married for a while, even fucking sex doesn't factor into the equation because you have it whenever you want to technically, but it gets more complicated. That's when you realize it's more complicated. So, what's the, well, I don't want to talk about his case individually. Well, his purpose, he, he realized that. Decade ago, 15 years ago, when he was really passionate, he was always either trying to prove something to somebody else, specifically his parents, about making all the sacrifices they've had Mm. worthwhile. But where that connected for him more is that when he's taking care of other people, he feels good. And I go, okay. But he doesn't have that in his life. Nothing. Right. There is nothing. So he's 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 uh, a business guy. Yeah. And so he's always trying to make more money. And he was thinking that he's trying to make more money to take care of his family, but he's running the hamster wheel. Right. And I go, literally when he walked out, my solution to him is, I'm going to talk to you in a week. And this week, every day, you have one task to complete. And that is you have to give something to somebody else. Right. And as soon as I said that, he lit up. He started smiling. And you said, meaning... I think we forgot. We've assigned so much value to 
property and monetary success and accolades, whether that's social media accolades and how many followers you have or whatever that is, that we forgot what impact actually feels like. Mm. And so a lot of us, I've worked with billionaires who wake up in the morning and start popping pills and drinking. Yeah. They are literally competing with other people in terms of how big their yachts are and how many like life rafts they have on them. That's literally a thing in their life. Um, many of us think that that's a dream, that that's where we want to end up. But if you end up there and you have to drink all day and take pills so you can function with your day, it's still a nightmare. It's just a nightmare on a yacht, which sounds exciting to a lot of people, but it's not when you're there. And so we forgot what making an impact and helping and and connecting to other people and and feeling important, not in the self-aggrandizing sort of way, but important as into the to the overall functioning of the world. Right. And I find with the vast majority of my clients, we end up working on purpose a mm. lot. Do you think the yacht crowd, um, do you think a lot of the people who end up in that social strata, not the people who are born into it, sure, um, but the people who work to get there, is there, um, how can I say this? Is there commonality? Is there something that they have in in common? I'm not phrasing this properly. What I'm trying to say is that when I see people who have struggled their whole lives to get rich, what I see is an unhealthy, addictive person. Mm. Because they just happen to be addicted to success, money, status, attention, you know. And it could have been heroin. It could have been coke. It could have been blowjobs at a truck stop it could have been lots of things in their case it's being expressed in a way that this society values and applauds which could make it even harder for them to recognize as a problem yeah um yes i like the distinction you made between people who were born into it versus people who have had to work for it because it's a huge difference i mean it's it's kind of it's pretty incredible when you see behind the scenes and you understand the difference between those two groups of people but look for a large swath of people who came from nothing and created actual wealth i don't think you could get there without having this dogged determination that you will win at all costs and when i even say that those words you will win at all costs so i used to say you know, it's funny. I talked to my girlfriend about this in college when I first, when I was an undergrad. And uh, I would say that if what you really want in life is money, if that's all you care about, you'll get money. You might be really unhappy when you end up in that place. But if that's really, really deep inside what you care about, it'll happen. It's how, one of the ways I realized I don't because I bought into the same bullshit for years thinking that there would be a certain number that would make me happy. And then I started working with these people and realized oh wait i could be really setting myself up for failure and on a more personal level if i'm not there i'm not taking the job because they make more money i'm not going on a career path because it brings more money i have to make peace with that myself and if what i mean what that means in my world which is really difficult for me to deal with sometimes internally is if i rent for the rest of my life and don't own property it's because i really don't care Right? In the grand scheme of things, I really don't care that much. And so I have to stop telling myself the story that it matters to me. Because what I find is when people live 
disingenuous lives. As in, they pick the path because, let's say they really, really want money because they think it'll make other people like them. Not because they really want money, but right. they want people to like them. That's the truth. Um, if you pick a disingenuous path, you end up getting the results sometimes without the emotional payoff that you were looking for. Yeah. And that's when it's dangerous. Because, you know, if you find yourself 30 years of no pursuit, realizing, oh my God, I've gone after the wrong thing for 30 years, that's this, I mean, disheartening is not even the right word. That's crushing. Yeah. Because you have to start from scratch somehow. And you said, do people, you, at the beginning you were asking, do people know? A lot of times when people get there and they realize they're lost, they get hopeless. Yeah. Because they say, I've worked this hard for something I thought I wanted. It's not what I really want. What do I do now? Yeah. And I deal with that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I lead my ladder up against the wrong wall it's a tough. long time ago. Yeah. You see it with, in so many different areas. Um, you know, when I, I, sometimes people ask me to, I do a podcast occasionally where I read emails and oh, respond cool. to them. And a lot of it's relationship stuff. And I find myself repeating often, don't build a house you don't want to live in. Yeah. And so many people are doing it in terms of, you know, developing a relationship with someone that they're not even really compatible with. They're just hot. Yeah. You know? Oh, totally. <laughs> it's, you know, and career wise, it's like, oh, there's mo that's money that pays well. Oh, great. I'll do that. Yeah. I, I'm only 24. It doesn't matter. And then 20 years 50, later, you're like, exactly. oh, now you're regional manager and it's too late to quit. And you never wanted to do this in the first place. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. such smart advice. I wish. I wish that was stuff we covered with people in high school, though. Yeah. You know, when people are starting to understand what they want to do. I get, you know, I, up until recently, I taught at UCLA and, um, you know, for 10 years. And students would come up to me and in office hours, they would ask questions. You know, they'd see my path and they'd ask questions about what their path should be. And what I would inevitably say is, look, your parents are going to hate me for saying this to you, but... You need to do some time in jail. If you're not sure, yes, that is a, <laughs> absolutely a recommendation for all my students. But if you don't... If you haven't found something you're really passionate about, yeah. push the pause button for a minute yeah. and just go try some stuff. Exactly. Exactly. They're pushed into making these lifelong decisions in their early 20s. And it's like, what the fuck do you know? You don't know anything. I, luckily, I realized that when I was in Alaska. Yeah. Uh, I had that, that realization like, wait a minute. I don't know what the fuck I want to do with my life. So I, I like, pushed the pause button until I was 30. Yeah. Well, I mean, parents, I feel like it scares parents because... They, f they think, well, if you push pause, you'll never push play again. Right. But the reality is that at least for a subset, look, some kids know exactly what they want. So this is not this message is not for you. You right. know, earmuffs on this. But yeah. uh, for everybody else who isn't sure and feels like, well, I'm doing it because it's the next thing. That's what I did. I went to college because it was the thing I was expected to do. Right. I was not committed. It sucked. I did everything I could to get kicked out. I somehow didn't and graduated. But... Um, if I would have paused to think about what I wanted to do, when I came back to grad school after all my escapades, I'll call them, what happened was I actually had motivation. For the first time in my life, I was actually motivated to do something. And what mm -hmm. I, the reason I, I clicked so much on purpose with a lot of people I work with was I, what I tell them is, it's all the same cliched stuff we've heard over and over, but when you find something that ignites you, hence everything that I do now, um, not the arson version of it. That's the other <laughs> podcast. But when you find something that gets you ignited, you don't have to pause anymore. It just moves you along. Right. And even on the shitty days, right. you wake up and you go, 
it's shitty, but I get to do this thing. Right. I fought with my wife, but I get to do this thing. And, you know, you said people don't have meaning. I'm a huge supporter of the notion that if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, stop for a moment and just do some soul searching. Right. Um, it will save you. For all those parents who are listening right now and are worried because you have teenage kids and you're, you're afraid that they will push pause, think to yourself for a moment what ends up happening if they go down the wrong path for five, six, seven years. And then what do they do? Now they have to backtrack five, six, seven years. The amount of effort, money, psychological torment that they've gone through is much, much worse than a couple of years ago. And, well, why don't you do some volunteer experience, do some interns? I don't give a fuck. Go travel. Do whatever it is that is a maybe Mm. to find your purpose. And also there's a psychological toll uh, that weakens us when we pretend we know something we don't know. And when you acknowledge not knowing, that actually makes you stronger. Yeah. Because you're aligned with what you know is the truth. The truth is, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And if you've got the courage to say that as a 19 or 20 or 25 year old or any age, that's going to strengthen you. Yeah. I have this bracelet I wear. That's why I'm I'm showing it to you. You're like, why are you showing me your wrist? Uh, It says fuck shame on it. And that's a phrase I use in the TEDx talk that I gave. And it's the thing that everybody clicked on after that. So... I made bracelets of them now, and I look at it when I get caught up because I still get caught up in that same thing, right? Mm. The um, this notion that I'm I shouldn't. Mm. Whenever I get caught up in that, and and it's an emotional, visceral kind of reaction, I have to stop and think: okay, what what's happening? Is it really because I'm going against my own ethics or my own morals and things of that nature? Which then all all the more power to me, and let me listen to that voice. Or am I scared of how people will respond? Right. Same with this book, right? right. Um, am I scared that somebody will misinterpret what I'm saying as nobody should abstain and people who struggle with alcohol should do another shot? Or am I more focused on the fact that there are millions of people who need to hear another voice and they will listen to this thing and get something out of this that maybe will guide them towards abstinence or maybe will guide them towards reducing their drinking but will help them in some way? Um, again, in that same vein of everything we've been talking about, we get so distracted in what we want to pay attention to and whose voices we we attend to that parents don't have the conversations with their teenagers or college-age children about uncertainty because, you know, I have a five and an eight-year-old, but um, we want to seem perfect and all-knowing to our kids. So we want to direct them down the right path. We want to well, you know, I've known you for so long now that I know what the right thing is for you. Even though that was probably done to us and we probably hated it before. Mm. We step into this pretend role, as yeah. you mentioned. Yeah, And we fuck things up when we pretend. We just do. Exactly. Because, I, I mean, you and I were talking a little bit about my parents before we started this because it turns out they live, like, basically, your yards connect. <laughs> totally. Um, That's amazing, by the way. <laughs> it's really weird in this giant city. Um, one of the things I, I really respect about my parents is that they didn't try to do that. Mm, they never came across as, as omniscient and, you know, they, when they didn't know, they just said, I don't know, you know, let's, I remember with my dad, I don't remember, I don't remember exactly what the issue was, but I was 11 or 12 or something. I asked him some sort of profound question and he was like, you know, I've never thought about that. Let's try to figure it out together. Oh, that's awesome. And he came up with a reading list and we read things and talked about them. And 
um, you know, and he, he sort of used it as a, a learning experience for the both of us, which, yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, I came from a, a household, and my dad was a rock star in his own right growing up, and so I idolized my dad until I found chinks in the armor like you always do. Yeah. But then because none of those were ever explicitly acknowledged, it just became this, it seemed false. Mm. And so now it's like praying to a false idol, which destroys the whole relationship. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that we fixed it, thankfully, but before he passed. But um, yeah. What did he do, your dad? He was a uh, physician. So he uh, he did high-risk pregnancies and... You know, again, we would sit around the dinner table at home whenever he was home because he worked a lot. And um, he would tell these stories of these women who were never able to have kids. And with his help, they were able to or, or kids, you know, babies who would have died without these high risk deliveries, et cetera, et cetera. And it was it was magical. Right. It was like in some way my dad bringing life to, to earth mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and he was really smart and always, you know, an athlete and all, all these things. He really seemed like an impossible kind of yardstick. Um, and we didn't, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but we never had genuine conversations where there was, where I saw, um, vulnerability mm. and it developed this really bizarre way of looking at him, which I think is by the way, probably pretty common. So especially among doctors. Yeah. You know, cause there's this being certain is important for doctors because patients don't want to see uncertainty, right? Sure. You don't want your doctor yeah, to that. say, well, I don't really know what's wrong with you. And I don't think, I, you know, that's true. Maybe you'll die. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't want no, that. You're right. Uh, my wife's a physician and, and you know, that's something we've talked about quite a bit. Like she, she's, you know, for her own psychological health, she acknowledges how little she knows. She, we were talking recently, uh, a friend was going through a problem. She's a psychiatrist, my yep. wife. And a friend was going through um, a very difficult psychological situation. And they were talking on the phone and Cassie was trying to help. And, and afterwards, she was in tears. And I said, what's wrong? And she's like, that, she said something like, you know, there's just so much I don't know. There's, you know, and, and, uh, I feel inadequate and mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, your acknowledgement of your inadequacy is what makes you fantastic. Yeah. The doctors who come in and they're like, I know everything, just sit down and shut up. Like you were saying, we're always 15 or 20 years behind the research in yeah. the clinical world. Why is that? It's because of the fucking certainty of the doctors who did their medical school 20 years ago and they're not hearing anything new. That's a great point. You know, they don't want to hear it. Like, no, no, I know. I know how it works. And I, it's too much work to keep constantly reevaluate, you know? That's a great point. So I, wish, tough. I wish we built... <clears throat> Well, or maybe, again, maybe conversations like these are the things that set out people's thinking in a different direction to say, what if it were my job to constantly question the knowledge I have? Because that is fighting against your internal biases, right? We are built to believe that the future will look like the past. Mm. It makes it simpler for our brain, whether you call it confirmation bias or the expectancy bias or, you know, I talk about the Pygmalion effect and how... Mm. um, we see in others what they project towards us and we expect them to behave in that way moving forward, which means that they are more likely to do so. I mean, it's we get caught in these self-fulfilling prophecies all the time. 
And as somebody who studied psychology literally from the age of like 18 to the time I was, you know, 30, I feel like it's partially my job to always question what is happening. Um, we talked about it right before the, the podcast as well, right? The more I read about leadership, the more I read that you want people around you that can speak truth to power and say, why, why is that true? Yeah. And then you have to go prove it, even if you're the boss, even if you're the, the person in charge. Why? Because you might find out you're wrong. Yeah. And if you're wrong, isn't it better to find that out now than to go, you know, stick the flag in the ground and kind of post up and say, this is the truth, and then find out you're wrong 15 years down the line? And um, if, we, if we could start adopting that mindset as a general rule, I think that would be one of those moments where humans actually um, rise above that kind of animalistic nature of just seeing what's in front of you and, and handling it. Because for the most part, as you mentioned, I mean, at least, you know, I'm 42 now. My parents and most of the people that I saw around, and it's so nice to hear that it wasn't like that in your household because that changes my bias too, right? Everybody always pretended like they knew everything. Everybody always pretended like they already understood it, even though I always joke and I told my students this at school all the time. You know, when I was in high school, I don't know what it was like for you, but in chemistry class and biology class in high school, the way we talked about an atom is completely different than the way people talk about atoms in chemistry class now. Neutrons were not a thing. Mm. Nobody had mentioned those before. There was, there was protons and electrons and a nucleus, and that's it. Now there's dark matter and there's neutrons and all this stuff. Reality didn't change, right? Like <laughs> the objective reality yeah. of the world didn't change. Right. Our perception of it changed along the way. How nice would it be if at any given point in time when somebody teaches you something, they go, look, this is what we know right now. It's probably going to change by the time you're my age, and that's okay. We'll learn more. Yeah, that's not the way we teach people, though. Well, not. It, it's interesting because I think in, and I'm talking out my ass here, so who knows if this is true? But my impression is that in the very hard sciences, like in a physics class at Caltech, they would say that. Yeah, which seems counterintuitive because in some they ways know they're, they're the hard sciences, and uh, this is proven, and um, but. Yeah, they, there seems to be a humility in cutting-edge physics. I just had a neuroscientist on the podcast, and we were talking about... Oh, I saw the post. Uh, it just came out yep. today, yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Patrick House, we talked a lot about brain parasites yep. and how they change perception and behavior in ways that we're not able to even comprehend, you yeah. know? Really interesting. And so there's a there's a humility in those sciences. I think medicine strangely, is one of the most resistant um, to new ideas and to sort of uh, acknowledging ignorance. That's interesting. I, you know, when I post things about the way that I work with addicts, <clears throat> invariably I get some people who are for it and then a lot of people who call me a con artist or think that um, I'm going to kill people, as we mentioned about the book, or, they, you know, Leave my the probably the most common comment is, you know, find God and everything will be better. And <laughs> and I I keep looking at those comments. They used to really upset me. I'm like, like to, to some at some point I actually said to my wife Sophie, I said, uh, I almost feel like somebody else needs to go and clear those without me looking at them because yeah. the trolls really upset me. Yeah. Because I wake up in the morning trying to figure out how to help a couple more people help with their addiction so that they don't die and their families don't struggle and all that. And so all those things upset me in different ways. But what I realized over time is the same kind of conversation we're having right now is people get stuck in their dogmatic idea. And then it's almost like they look around the world to go destroy anything that 
raises doubt that raises doubt or speaks yeah. or, or speaks differently them. or th- yeah. exactly or yeah. threatens their their way of looking at it whereas my i don't know if it's the academic background i have or what it is but my way of looking at the world in general is let's incorporate more ideas so when i look in the book when i talked about these four camps what i do is give a good amount of research that shows support for each one of these four camps the argument i make in the book is let's stop fighting about who's the more right myth than the absolute myth that when i was Doing doing interviews for Sex at Dawn, I kept saying the book, and oh. and my publicist was like, every time you're tempted to say the book, say the title of the book. Love it. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so in the abstinence myth, when I mentioned the camps, these aren't camps I invented. These yeah. camps have been around for decades, if not centuries, and I show support for each one of them. What pisses me off, and you you mentioned Johan Hari, so this is a perfect example because in in his big famous TED talk now he talks about the Rat Park experiment right and now everybody knows Bruce Alexander's Rat Park experiment I was studying it when I was in grad school before anybody was really talking about it and I wrote an article about it then but people read uh, the Rat Park experiment they go oh it's all about environment and then people study biology go oh it's all about biology Uh, and then they read about early life trauma and how it changes the way your brain works they go oh it's all about trauma yeah what I keep saying to people is, do you find yourself just jumping from camp to camp and trying to figure out, when I talk to people, they go, well, is it mostly biology or mostly psychology? And I go, why the fuck is that the question you have? Right. Like, does it really matter to you if it's 51% biology, 49% uh, psychology? Right. Or the other way around? Is that what you're going to work on for the next 50 years? Like, why are we so caught up in creating a deterministic, singular answer that will work in all cases? And I make an argument in the absolutist myth that, just fucking stop it. Like, even, I like the talk and I like what Johan Hari's uh, expression in that TED talk did for people to open their minds. But in the end, it says, you know, addiction is not a disease. It's uh, about, about connection. The, the opposite of, uh, yeah. yeah, the opposite of uh, addiction is not so sobriety. It's a connection or something like that. Right. For some people. Right. For some people, it's that. Yeah. But for other people, it's a lot of biology, right? Like, their yeah. their physiological systems have struggled so much right now that, one of the things they need is biological support. I I just wish we could kind of get a little bit more comfortable with nuance. We need. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, because it's not obviously it's not just in this. It's, oh, and, yeah. and I wonder if if we're you know here we are in the information age right so there's all this information coming at us faster and faster all the time. The volume's going up exponentially. And I wonder if we're so overwhelmed with information that the tendency to oversimplify is growing yeah. in response. You know what I mean? It's and like, algorithms are making it worse because algorithms keep serving you the sort of information you've sure. already been looking at. So yeah, Facebook will that. serve yeah. you yeah. more things like the things you've already looked at. But I'm just thinking, like, imagine if, if you had a filing system with, like, 20 different filing categories and you're and and you're getting like two documents per minute and okay you got to file them okay that's fine this is you know here this is that and then it's four documents a minute and then it's 10 documents a minute and then it's 30 documents a minute you're not going to keep filing them in 20 files and then it's going to break down to like oh this is science this is relationships this is food like you know it's it's going to break down into simpler categories because you don't have the time to analyze and think about it. That's smart. And, you know, um, I was just listening to somebody earlier today talk about Tim Ferriss's low information diet mm. sort of method. Um, that's on us then. 
right? It's on us to decide what do we care enough about to actually absorb information about it and then let the other shit go. What's another aspect of the contaminated lake? It's yet another contaminant now in the water. Information itself yeah. has become a pollutant in our world. And But the good news is if you want to, you actually have control over that pollutant because you can you have to do some work for it it's not it doesn't it will not show up automatically but you can go on facebook and say i don't want these sort of stories mm. and it will pull this stuff out for you or better yeah you cannot go on facebook absolutely which i do yeah or you know i have this messaging uh sort of idea in my head on instagram and it takes me a minute to catch it every time and i get that but if i realize that i'm following somebody who is not feeding me like when i see their their messages didn't make my day better, I'm done. I cut them out. Mm. Because I don't need to take time out of my day to look at random shit anymore. <laughs> That's it. It's just over, right? Um, yeah. It's just There's no yeah. use in it for me. I've got my kids. i got my family. Yeah. If I could spend those five seconds looking at some random picture that even maybe a friend of mine who's a photographer took, right. but it's just some random hot chick on a beach, Yeah. cut that out. Yeah. No, that does not serve me in any way, shape, or form. And it takes some discipline. And sometimes I don't recognize it for weeks after I've been following the same kind of person. But figure out for yourself, this is back to the why. It's hard to say no to a hot chick on a beach, though. Yeah, I get it. But, uh, you know, with all, the, <laughs> with all the sex addiction stuff my wife and I have gone through, oh, it's easier, oh, it's easier okay. to say no to it. But, again, even in, in the context of everything we're talking about, that's about being really honest with yourself. Yeah. It's, it gets back to saying, okay, why am I doing what am I doing? What what's the purpose behind it and what are the things that I'm doing that are serving it? And then start cutting things away. You know, the whole concept of a four hour work week that everybody kind of got really, really excited about what they didn't realize is in the end, it still becomes about a lot of self-discipline. It doesn't just show up, right? You have to actively cut out things that don't serve you. Um, Even I love hearing about the way he came up with the name for the book, which was he didn't just think up a name for a book. He, shopped around like 15, 20 different names until he saw the one people reacted to the most. If we had the discipline in our lives to really understand what we care about and then see what things that we do serve them versus not, I would have a lot less clients. Uh, there would be a lot less people who are committing suicide because, look, if you're, if you're committing suicide, if we really think for a second about the depths of despair that somebody has to be in, still again biological psychological environmental spiritual whatever it is that's going for you there are elements in there that it would take a lot of shame to overcome a lot of uh, transparency to finally bring out into the world a lot of courage but there are things out of your life that you can eliminate cut and change that would be really painful but would leave a lot less of a mark than suicide and I think we have to ask as a society, we have to ask ourselves the question of what are we doing that is causing these things? Because it's, it's happening. We're, we're watching it. More people are dying from drugs. More people are killing themselves. Uh, mental health struggles are in, on, the, on the increase everywhere. Um, what, that's a societal issue. I mean, it could also be a biological issue in terms of contaminants and things of that nature. So you know, that's my, that's my purpose. My purpose is to move forward and try to figure out more and more of these things that we can um, change in the way that people approach their life. Because I've been through the pain. I lived a life that 
seemed to the people who were in my immediate surroundings as as if they were serving me. And it was when I realized that it was this massive downward spiral that I was never going to escape. And the effort to get out of it was pretty Herculean, but I would like to save people that level of effort and, and give them tools. That sounds like a good place to end. Thank <laughs> you. That, yeah. was, that was a great summation of what you're doing and what you're about. Uh, the Abstinence Myth is coming out. If it's not out already, it's coming out soon. It's available on Amazon. The author is Adi Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E. Yep. Correct. And your website? So ignited.com, I-G-N-T-D.com is where you can go to find out about everything we're doing. Ignited without the vowels. Yep. All right. Thanks, Adi. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with uh, Dr. Adi Jaffe. Interesting dude, interesting perspective on a very important topic. Uh, Just a couple of things I wanted to uh, remind you of before we go to the Carsey Blanton song and reminders about mortality and all that, as if you haven't had enough of that already. Uh, Let's see, we're still, the transcribers are working hard on the eBooks. If you want to pitch in on that, I'm sure they could use some more help. Uh, they are working on the um, a sex book and a consciousness and drugs book appropriate for this. So if you want to be involved in either of those, you can reach out to Miguel, who's handling the drugs and consciousness book. He's at ts1drugs at gmail.com. Or Erin, who's coordinating the sexuality book. She's at ts1sex at gmail.com. So both of those projects are underway. What else? We've still got a, uh, a shit ton of tangentially reading books in my mom's garage. So if you want a full color version of that, one of those beautiful books put together by Misfit Press. If you live in the United States, order it from my mom. It's the same price. It might be a little more than Amazon. I don't know. They adjust their prices, but um, I think it's 20 bucks. It's beautiful, full color. Uh, we can't, unfortunately, offer that to you around the world because it's so damn expensive to send it because it's heavy. It's a beautiful, solid book. So if you're elsewhere in the world, please order it from your local Amazon affiliate. Um, but if you're in North America or in the United States, order it through the website, uh, tangentiallyspeaking.com. You'll see the store there. Also, T-shirts are in. We reordered all the shirts from um, Thailand. Boxes have been arriving. So we've got a bunch of T-shirts there. The Civilized to Death shirts are all in stock. We've got some Venthropology shirts coming in this week, I think. Uh, So we're waiting for those. What else? The uh, Tangentially Speaking clips, if you have any particular clips that you'd like to see or hear on YouTube, you can um, reach out to Jack at tsbestof at gmail.com. He puts those together. Uh, He's a sound editor out of Portland, I believe. So, yeah, if there's anything you really like, you think is a particularly good conversation, you might say, oh, I'd really like to hear that where Stanley and Chris are talking about this and it's, you know, minute 57 to 59 on episode 27. That's that's the kind of information that Jack will love if you get that to him. All right. The opening music is by Basin and Range. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. You can find more of their music at basinandrange.bandcamp.com. You can support the podcast through Patreon. You've heard me talk about that before. 
I won't do it all again, but I love it. It helps. All the travel, all the booking, all the time. Uh, at the moment, this is still a garage operation. It's pretty much just me and uh, mom handles the shirts and the books and Natasha handles some of the email stuff, but it's pretty much all me. So if you can help out supporting the podcast financially, that is a big help. It allows me to dedicate more time to it and to uh, to keep it face to face. You know, it's real easy to just phone it in, as they say, do these interviews over Skype. I could you know, reach out to people around the world. It's very easy, but it's different. I think you'll agree that the quality of the conversation that you can have when you're sitting across a table from someone is different from what you get through technology. So it's expensive though. It means I have to fly around, drive around. Um, scheduling is a lot more complicated, takes a lot more time. So it's very helpful uh, to have some financial assistance to keep it the way it is, if you like it the way it is. You can also um, be helpful if you use the Amazon affiliate link on my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com. You'll see it there on your phone or on uh, your web, on your uh, computer, and uh, a small percentage of whatever you spend. Not that small, really. It's like 5% in most product categories. All right. And as always, the song you're about to hear is called Smoke Alarm. It's by Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about her at CarseyBlanton.com. The song is a reminder to live every day as if it were your last. And I mean, a good day, not your last day lingering on the threshold somewhere in some intensive care unit. It's called Smoke Alarm, as I said. And uh, yeah. It's all about carpying that DM. Shout out to Justin and Bennett. Catch you next time. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground